Let's start in John chapter 12, and then we will very soon be back to the beginning of the book, and we're actually going to work our way just about through the whole book today. John chapter 12, verse 20, and I'll read down to verse 23. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is an interesting little story that only occurs in the Gospel of John. This is one of the last events that happens, and in fact, it is the last event other than what Jesus is going to say before we get to the Last Supper. So Jesus, the Gospel of John spends most of its time during the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, and the last thing that happens is a bunch of Greeks, that would be Gentiles, of course, right? Gentiles that come and want to see Jesus. And you can see Philip and Andrew are a little hesitant about, should we even tell Jesus this? Jesus has made it very clear up to this point, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. He was Jesus, the Messiah. He was the son of David. And here come some Greeks who say, in the older translation that I memorized growing up, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And when Jesus hears that, he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The Son of Man, of course, is a way that Jesus would speak about himself, in case you didn't know that. But he said, the hour has come to be glorified, and he immediately launches into the grain of wheat that dies in the ground, and then comes back and, and bears fruit. And he talks about how my soul is, is afraid, but I can't turn away from this hour. And he begins to say, listen, I, I, I proclaimed the message that the Father told me. And he, and he says, if you believe in me, you can be saved. And then we go right into chapter 13. So here's the the question, what is it about these Greeks coming and saying, we want to see Jesus that caused our Lord to have that kind of reaction, at least in the way that John narrates and tells the story? And I'll tell you right now, I won't keep you in suspense. It is because these Gentiles, non-Jews who did not know the scriptures, asked that they might see him. And this request from those that are not of the house of Israel to see Jesus is the culmination in this book of a very strong theme in the book of John. Now, we know, of course, the Holy Spirit inspired scripture, but that should not preclude the fact that the scripture is a very profound and deep, rich work of literature. I mean, it should only make more sense, right, if the Holy Spirit inspired it, that there's so much to be drawn out of this. There's so many things that are being taught and being said. And when you go through the Gospel of John, this theme of seeing is very, very important. And in fact, it spills over out of the Gospel of John into the epistles of John and even into the revelation of John, the idea of seeing Jesus. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to trace this theme all the way through the works of John. And in fact, this is such a profound theme, you can turn to chapter one now, that I had to cut stuff out there's no way I could have done all of this in one Bible study. I'm not going to be able to give you all the verses. I'm not even going to give you, as you might call them, every variation on these themes. We're going to hit the highlights as we go through this. And I encourage you to learn from this that this is how you can do Bible study on your own. Is if something seems to come up an awful lot, to use the Gospel of John again, he uses darkness and light. And life and death, contrast in the Gospel of John. You could go through and trace the prayer life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, for example. There's themes that go through the Bible, and this can be a, it's called a thematic study. Sometimes it's called biblical theology, as opposed to systematic theology. But we're going to look at this and, and see why Gentiles saying, we want to see Jesus, signaled for Christ that my work, my ministry is just about over. We've reached the zenith of where we're going before the crucifixion. And this begins in John chapter 1, verse 18. The first 18-ish verses of John 
are, are the prologue. And I, I almost, since we're using the, the analogy of a theme today, it's almost if John is a, is a symphony, then the first 18 verses are the overture. This is the very beginning. If you've ever been to a play or if you've been to an opera, I've been to a musical before, and you're sitting down and you're finding your seats and the lights go down and the began, band begins to play before the curtains open, what they're doing is they're playing all the major themes of that music or the opera or the symphony or whatever it is. And then as the, the show unfolds, they will develop those themes and they'll play them more fully. And that's exactly what we see in the overture or the prologue of John. And for our purposes, we're going to look at verse 18. Right before he launches into the story, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, I've received this question before, and it's not usually asked in a kind spirit. Usually it's, how can Jesus be God if he says right here in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the disciples obviously saw Jesus, so you're a heretic and you're going to hell. That's how it's been posed to me before. I'm sure you're much nicer than that. And the thing is, that fellow is on to something. When he reads that verse, he's on to something. Because that is what John is trying to provoke in you when you first read that. He gives us two parts of that verse, and the first one is a very plain, obvious Old Testament lesson that no one has ever seen God. And we kind of go, all right, I can buy that. But this is actually calling back to what we read not long ago in the book of Exodus on Mount Sinai. When Moses was speaking to the Lord, and he asked him in chapter 33, verse 18, Lord, show me your glory. Now, that just means, God, I want to see you in all of your unfiltered, unvarnished reality. And God responded by saying in verse 20 of Exodus 33, man shall not see me and live. Because Moses, I can't do that. You would die. You cannot endure the sight of me. But what he does is, what does he do? He hides him in the cleft of the rock. And when God has passed through and declared his name, he says, you shall see my back. You might even say, you shall see the afterglow. After I've, I'll come here and then I'll leave and you'll come back and see what's still resounding or reflecting after I've left. But that story is important because it tells us no one can see God. You can't look God in the face and live. Now, there are several places in the Old Testament where people say they have seen God, but every view of God from that time and before that time is either a sidelong glance, like what Moses had, as in he didn't see the full thing. It was a symbolic view of God, or it was spiritual, meaning you're seeing a vision or you're seeing something that represents God, but you're never seeing that full unveiled face view of God. So in Exodus 24, when the elders of Israel eat in the presence of the Lord, there's that sapphire plain between them and God. In Judges 13, when Samson's parents say, we're going to die because we've seen God. They saw the angel of the Lord. They saw the glory of the Lord, but they did not see God in his fullness. In Isaiah 6, when he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, go back, by the way, and read that. We don't see God's face there. In fact, the smoke is probably what is concealing the Lord in the train of his robe. But again, this is a vision. You're not seeing God in his full reality. This is a biblical point. You can't see God and live. So all of these pagans that claim that Apollo came to me and spoke last night or Thor that, and came and spoke to me in a, in a vision. No, no, no one has seen God. And we would agree with this. But there's a part two to John 1.18. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here's part two. No one has seen God, but God has been made known. And this, of course, for John is Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point of the, of the book of John. And in fact, when he says that, this is, this is such a cool thing to me, and I'll only, I promised I wouldn't spend a lot of time on this, but it's just so cool. In verse 18, the older translation says, No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is one of the coolest textual critical issues that we have. Now, you know, as we dig up older and older manuscripts of Scripture, we get closer and closer to what the autographs would have been. And a lot of people who really don't like that will say, You're ripping out all of the best Trinitarian passages, and you you don't believe that Jesus is actually God. Well, check this out. The 
oldest versions of John chapter 1, verse 18 don't say only begotten Son. They say only begotten God. It explicitly says Jesus is the only begotten, the monogenes, the one and only God. He's saying, no one has seen God, but God has made God known. That sounds like Trinity to me, doesn't it? And you say, well, why, what's the difference? Well, that's the whole textual critical issue. That's the, we have different manuscripts that say different things. But as we find older ones, the older ones say only begotten God. Now, it's no secret that John believed Jesus was God. We're going to see that this morning. But the whole point is that he's saying, no one has seen God, but there's this one guy named Jesus Christ who was with God and was God and made God known. Jesus himself will say this later in chapter 646. He'll say no one has seen God except the one who was with God. And then in chapter 838, he says, I declare to you what I have seen from my father. Now, this is where those who are skeptical might say, you Christians are always taking good things and trying to make them bigger and more magical than they really are. Jesus was a great man. Why can't we just have him be a good person and leave it at that? Why do we have to say that he's God? Well, the answer is because we have not seen God. And if we want to see God, we need somebody who has seen God, who can reveal God to us. And John says that's who Jesus is. So if we want to just, we're going to work up to that conclusion. Remember, this is the beginning. John is not hiding anything. He tells you where he's going in verse 18 of chapter 1. The problem, no one has seen God. The solution, but God was made flesh and revealed himself to us. And you say, all right, I don't know about all that. Well, you know what? There's an invitation that we see later on in chapter 1 of John. You can skip down to verse 36 and following where the opening of the gospel of John, when it says, we have not seen God, you with me? We have not seen God, but this guy is going to show us God. All right, let's, let's, let's see what happens here. In verse 36, we get the first of three, actually four, but in the chapter one, three invitations to see Jesus. John the Baptist says, behold, which is another word for what? Look at that. <laughs> Behold, the Lamb of God. He said, the one whom you see the Spirit descend upon. That word see, very important. We're going to see it a lot. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then two of John's disciples go, Well, if that's the Lamb of God, you're just John the Baptist. We're going with this guy. And they go after Jesus, and Jesus notices them following him, and he says, Can I help you? <laughs> what, what do you guys want? And they said, Well, where are you staying, sir? And in John 1.39, Jesus tells them, Come, and you will see. And then in verse 46, Philip, who is one of these early disciples of Jesus, goes to a man named Nathaniel, who we believe might be Bartholomew, by the way. But he says, hey, I've met this guy named Jesus. I think he might be the Messiah. And he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And in 146, Philip tells him, come and see. So we're at the very end of the overture, the prologue of John, we're told no one has seen God. But there's this guy, Jesus, and he can tell you everything you need to know about God. In fact, he is God. And you go, I don't know if I believe that. And the, right away, in the first chapter of John, we get three invitations to come and see. If you're skeptical like Nathaniel is when you hear these things about Jesus, he says, just come and see. Just come and see Jesus. Just come and meet him. Just come and talk to him. Well, Nathaniel does, and if you want to keep reading, we're down in verse 49. Jesus says, ah, look, here you go. There's a, there's a righteous Israelite. He goes, how do you know who I am? And Jesus said, well, I, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree a few minutes ago. And in verse 48, Nathaniel, or 49, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we're invited three times. Come and see. And when Nathaniel sees Jesus, he confesses him to be the Son of God. And we go, wow, that's, that's quite a lot. I don't know if I'm there yet. But when you come and see Jesus, even if you say, I don't know if just hearing the name of Jesus is enough to get me there, but Jesus makes a promise, and I'll make you the same promise. If you come and see Jesus, you're going to see amazing things. 
He says, you're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus' name for himself. So he is basically saying, like Bethel in Genesis 28, 12, when Jacob slept on the rock and woke up and he saw the ladder, the stairway to heaven and the angels up, coming up and down, Jesus said, you're going to see that upon me. Jacob in that place, he said, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jesus is saying, if you stick with me, you're going to see that in me. He promises Martha in chapter 11, verse 40. He says, you will see the glory of God. So this is the promise. The problem that we're seeing in the beginning is no one has ever seen God. But then we're invited. But come and see Jesus. And you might say, well, what will I see if I see Jesus? And he says, you'll see the glory of God. And isn't that exactly what Moses wanted back in Exodus 33? Show me your glory. So here we are. We're, as believers, we, we love this stuff. But as a skeptic, you might say, okay, I recognize that the problem of humanity is that we don't know God. I am willing to come with you because I like you, and I'll come and see Jesus. And you're promising me that if I really see Jesus, then I'll see God's glory. Okay, well, I'm, I'm with you so far. Let's keep going. Well, when you get to, through the Gospel of John, what you see very often, using this see terminology, and I had to kind of skip over this, unfortunately, for time's sake, but repeatedly, the, the people are saying, show us a sign so that we can see it, and when we see, we will believe. And repeatedly, Jesus will make this claim, don't you see what I've done? If you've seen these works, then you can believe. And the greatest of these comes in John chapter 9. Skip over that way. In John chapter 9, they come across a blind man who's been blind from birth, and the disciples ask a really sensitive question, really kind and compassionate question. They say, hey, Rabbi, who sinned that this guy was born blind, his parents or him? And it's like, the guy's like, I'm blind, not deaf. I can hear what you're saying. That's not nice. And Jesus goes, nobody sinned. Not everything is somebody's fault. Remember that sometimes, by the way. Not everything is somebody's fault. Sometimes bad things just happen because we live in a fallen world. But he said he was born blind so that he could display the glory of God. And so Jesus does what any person that wants to help a blind man does. He spits in the mud and rubs it in his eyes. And he said, Jesus, why would you do that? He says, yeah, you better go wash that off. Go to the pool of Siloam. And this guy goes and as he washes the mud out of his eyes, he's able to see. Now, this becomes a big deal. I mean, it would be a big deal today, but especially back then, because the rabbis used to teach at this time that the only miracle that the Old Testament prophets never did was open up the eyes of a blind man. And Isaiah said that when Messiah comes, he will bring opening of eyes to the blind. So when somebody comes who can open the eyes of the blind, we'll know he's the Messiah. Now, Jesus does that, and they hate Jesus. They've been telling everybody Jesus is a false prophet. They've been telling everybody Jesus is a heretic. Don't listen to him. He's trying to upend our traditions. He's trying to get rid of all of our, our national pride as Jews. And then he opens the eyes of a blind guy. Now they're stuck. So what do they do? They bring this guy in and they grill him and they grill his parents. And what happened? Tell us what really happened. Are you positive that it was Jesus? Don't you know that Jesus is a sinful man? And that's what that, we get that famous verse in 25. He said, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. How significant is that statement in light of this theme that we're tracing through the Gospel of John? That seeing is what we're after. And here's somebody who can open the eyes of the blind. And they said, but it can't be Jesus because Jesus doesn't hold to the traditions and he doesn't share our theology. And this guy goes, well, he's got to be from God because nobody, you told me that nobody but God could do this. And they kicked him out of the synagogue. The thing that he had just gained by being able to see was taken away from him because of Jesus. Well, Jesus is a, is a kind, loving man. So in verse 35, when Jesus heard that they had cast him out, he found him. He went looking for him. Now, re let's read this carefully, keeping our theme in mind here. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Very significant thing to say to a blind man, isn't it? You've seen him. 
And it's he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. What is it about the Gospel of John that when people really see Jesus, they keep making these wonderful, remarkable, out-of-this-world claims about him? Nathaniel sees Jesus, and he says, You're the Son of God. The blind man sees Jesus and falls at his knees and worships him. How would you think if somebody fell to their knees and worshipped you? And I don't mean like they were being nice, like they were bowing to you and committing their life to you and calling you God. Like, whoa, 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 but I'm going to get struck by lightning if you keep doing that. Please stop. But he worshiped Jesus and Jesus allowed him to do it. And he says, I came to open the eyes of the blind so that they may see. This story raises the stakes that to see Jesus is not just to see God's glory which is what he promised us, but to give Jesus glory too. In John 17, 24, Jesus is going to pray to God that the disciples will see my glory that I had before the foundations of the world. Now we pray all the time, Lord, be glorified. Jesus prayed, God, glorify me. In fact, John 1, 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. When you see Jesus in the Gospel of John, they give him glory. They worship him. They give to Jesus that which only belongs to God. So wait a minute, if Jesus came to reveal God's glory, but now he's saying that he deserves glory, who is this guy? I can buy that Jesus was a great man, but God? I'm not going to bow down and worship any other great man. But people seem to be doing that to Jesus. He said, I've come that you might see, and when people see, they worship him. Now what people will say is, nah, people are crazy. Jesus never wanted us to worship him. That's something that they made up later. Well, will you turn with me to John chapter 14, verse 6 through 11, keeping this theme of seeing in mind. No one has seen God, but come and see Jesus. And if you do see Jesus, you'll see the glory of God. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. And they begin to give not only God, but to give him glory. Was Jesus okay with that? Well, read John 14, starting verse 6. Jesus said to him, that's Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pause. A lot of people go, okay, I'm down with that. I'm down with the idea that Jesus can bring us to God. I'm even willing to accept that Jesus is the only way to get to God. But to go beyond that is just unacceptable. But you've got to keep reading. Look what Jesus said about himself. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Obviously, if you didn't know, my father, Jesus is speaking about God himself. He says, from now on, you do know him, my father, and have seen him. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. But then in chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus said, you have seen the father. Now, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. I just want to see God. That's all Philip wanted from the very beginning, right? Come and see. That was Philip at the beginning, and now he says, show us the Father. That's what we want. Yes, that right there, Jesus. But in verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? That verse gives me chills a little bit. I want to see God. And he goes, Philip... How long have we known each other? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. That's picking up that other part of the theme that I wasn't able to get later. To see the works of Jesus is to see the works of God. Believe me. 
that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. First, Jesus claims to be the only way to the Father. Then he claims that those who have seen him have seen the Father. And then he claims to mutually indwell the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In Trinitarian language, this is called perichoresis. It's a Greek word that means mutually indwelling. That means that each person of the Trinity contains the wholeness of the Trinity. That to see the Spirit is not to see a third of God, but to see the whole of God. They mutually indwell one another, that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Him, likewise the Spirit. So Jesus, where where have we gone here? No one has seen God. All right, but I can solve that problem. Okay, I'm willing to work with you. Come and see. Who am I going to see? I'm going to see Jesus. What am I going to see if I see Jesus? He promises, you'll see the glory of God. But then it goes a step further, that to see Jesus is to see His glory also, that Jesus shares glory with the Father. And Jesus doubles down on that. And He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen God. Jesus claims to be the final and ultimate revelation of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. So many Christians are afraid of God the Father. They don't want to talk to God because God's mad and God's angry and God does judgment and I'm not into that. Love Jesus, though. Now, Jesus always had like a lamb on his shoulders and children came and loved Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God the Father. If you want to know what Jesus, what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about you, you look at Jesus. If you want to know God's opinion on something, you look at Jesus. Because to see Jesus is to see the Father. He'll say later, in, or earlier in our case, chapter 10, he'll say, I and the Father are one. This is exactly what we see in the prologue, in the overture of John, which I didn't even get time to read, but you know it. The Word who was with God and yet was God. The who became flesh and displayed the glory of God. The God that no one has seen and yet God has made Him known. The distinction and yet the unity. The stakes are continually raised. It's telling us that your eyes are blind. Say, so come and see. All right, I'll come and see. You'll see the glory of God. But you know what? You can't because your eyes are blind. I'm blind. Well, how am I supposed to see? You've got to let Jesus open your eyes. And when you do open your eyes, he says, to see me is to see the Father. This is the claim of John. This is the claim of the church that Jesus Christ is God, very God. He is in eternal triunity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So people say, all right, if you're going to say that, you better have something to back it up, Jesus. I mean, that's fair, isn't it? If I were to come up here and tell you that I am God, very God, I'd hope you all would just get up and walk out of here. So, okay, you're going to tell me that this man, and Jesus was a man, was, was God in the flesh, and that to see him is to see the Father, and that to glorify him is also to glorify the Father, and that if you really want to see God, you've got to come and see this guy Well, Jesus is aware of that. Turn with me to John 16. This is still the same Last Supper. And again, we're using these C words again. A little while, he tells his disciples, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. There's a quote from your your apostles right there. We do not know what he is talking about. (laughs) Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So there's, I mean, there's space. They're eating dinner here. Jesus says this and then like they keep eating and they're like, do you know what he means by that? What is he talking about? I don't know. Jesus said, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He says, you're seeing me, and to see me is to see the Father, but then you're not going to see me, and then you're going to see me again. And it's going to be heartbreaking when you don't see me, but it's going to be rejoicing when you do see me again. Now, we know the end of the book. We know what happens. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. 
and I'm going to rise from the dead. That's the evidence that Jesus holds up to substantiate everything that he has said so far. He says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And to see my glory is to see God's glory. You see, how can you say something like that? He says, I will die and then I will rise again. And he uses it in the language of seeing and not seeing. This is the sign of Jonah that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 11. He said, what sign will you give us that we believe? He goes, how about the sign of Jonah? Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and then came out. And I'm going to be in the earth for three days and then I'm going to come out. In John 2, when he was cleansing the temple, they said, what sign do you give us to prove that you have the authority to do this? He said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he wasn't talking about the actual temple. He was talking about himself. You kill me, and I'm going to come back in three days. So what we're seeing here, Jesus said, in order to prove everything that I said is true, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. That seems to me a perfectly reasonable sign to offer to prove that somebody is divine. I'll die and then I'll come back. You go, okay, I'll take that bet. Because it's totally unattainable. You, have, you, you can't do that. I can't just will myself back to life. And there are some people that talk about Christians like we think this just happens sometimes. Like scientists will be like, don't you know that when someone dies, their body is dead and it, it starts to decay? And I'm like, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's why this is a wonderful story. Because it doesn't happen. That's why Jesus gave us the one thing that no one can fake. And that very same night, Jesus was arrested. He was taken for several different trials, none of which were held according to the standards of law and justice. He was tortured. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified. They nailed him to a tree in front of everybody and hoisted him up so that the whole world could watch him die. They confirmed he was dead. They stabbed him in the side. And blood and water flowed. They buried him in a tomb. They wrapped him up. They rolled the stone in front. They posted guards in front of the tomb. It's almost like when Elijah was pouring water on the altar. So let's make this as hard as possible. If I said, I'll die and rise again, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die publicly, and I'm going to die through torture, and you're going to lock me up in this airtight tomb for three days so that if even I was alive when you put me in there, I'm sure not going to be alive after a couple hours. And you can put guards in front of it if you want. And you can put the Roman soldiers with the authority of Caesar behind them. He was buried. They saw him no more. And friends, if that was the end of the story, then everything Jesus said means nothing. He was just a crazy man who thought he was God. Well, he had some good things to say. Listen, when people send me weird videos on the internet, I don't care if you've got one or two good ideas. If you think you're God... Or if you think that like you're secretly an alien from outer space or something, it's like, forgive me, I'm not going to take anything you say seriously. So, so much for the idea that I don't believe Jesus was God, but you know, he had some good things to say. Jesus didn't just claim to be God. Jesus staked everything about himself on this. Paul knows that, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins and our faith is useless and we're the most pathetic people the world has ever seen. So all these people that are trying to, they're desperate as they see their culture sliding away, so they're trying to grab hold of the Bible like a token or a talisman and wave it in front of people. You don't have to believe it as long as you've got it. Like, no, yes, you do have to believe it. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just run off and do whatever you want? No one has seen God at any time. But come and see Jesus. If you see him, you'll see the glory of the Father. And actually, he deserves glory too because he's able to open the eyes of the blind. Everybody who really sees him worships him. He claims to be one with the Father, that to see him is to see the Father. And you say, well, how am I supposed to believe that? He'll die and then he'll rise from the dead. Well, he did die. Friday, Saturday, we reach Sunday, which is the third day. Just picture yourself in the, the shoes of the disciples here. It says that they were hiding in the upper room. Probably barricaded themselves in there. Because like they just killed Jesus. They're coming for us next. But then Mary Magdalene bursts in, in chapter 20, verse 18, and says, I have seen the Lord. 
She calls Jesus the Lord, by the way, which is very significant if you know your Old Testament. And they run to go and see. They see that the tomb is empty. The stone's been rolled away. The guards are gone. The, the wrappings that they wrapped him in are just lying there. And they can't believe it. They say, he's not in the tomb anymore. And they're confused. And then when they get back and they're talking about it, Jesus appears in their midst and they see him again. Turn to John chapter 20. And they say, we've seen the Lord. They see Jesus again. Now you say, well, they might believe that, but I'm not some, some credulous, gullible nobody from back in the day when they still didn't know what electricity was. So I, I just can't believe something like that. Well, you're not alone. John chapter 20, and this really is the culmination of this whole theme through the book of John. Thomas, in John 20, verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have, here it is again, seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. There are some people that are just about that skeptical. But eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Go ahead and trace the theme of peace throughout the Gospel of John 2, by the way. That's a fun one. But in verse 27, he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas sees Jesus, and he answered him, My Lord and my God. From Nathaniel in the beginning, to the blind man in the middle, to Thomas at the end, to see Jesus is to see God. And Jesus said in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas would not believe unless he saw, but then he did see and he did believe. And he confessed that to see Jesus is to see God. That Jesus is one with the Father. And in fact, that's the primary job of an apostle, was to witness to the resurrection. Acts 1.22, when they're discussing over who's going to replace Judas. Is it going to be Joseph or is it going to be Matthias? They said, it has to be someone who saw the risen Lord has to be somebody that actually saw Jesus. That was the primary job of an apostle. Later on, when Paul is defending his apostolic credentials, he says, have not I seen the Lord? Because he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, didn't he? The church organized itself at its first meeting around preserving the testimony of what they had seen. They get together and say, our primary job is to never forget that we saw the risen Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is so cool, Paul says, of course Jesus has risen from the dead. He appeared to hundreds of people. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he says, most of them are still alive. You can go ask them. Now, of course, this is 2,000 years later for you and me. They're not alive any longer. But at the time it was written, they could still double check. They could go back and ask people who had seen Jesus. And I'll ask you, what evidence would you require of something that happened 2,000 years ago? I mean, you're not going to get video, sorry. You're not going to get that. You're not going to get crisp HD photographs. But you know what you might get? The best thing, in fact, the only thing you can hope for is that somebody who was there and saw it wrote their story down. That's what history is, isn't it? And in fact, most history isn't even by people who saw it. They're writing down the stories of those who did. In the New Testament, we have those who saw it writing it down. And in fact, they were writing it down less than 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. They knew it was that important what they had seen. Because to see the risen Lord is to see the evidence that he provided that he himself was the Son of God. It matters. 
If he did rise from the dead, then he is the one that can solve the problem of John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. But Jesus Christ has made him known. Any amens anywhere in this room? Come on. Jesus has shown us the Father. Can you see this amazing thing that runs through the Gospel of John? We start out with the problem, no one has seen God. And then it's come and see. And then what am I going to see? You're going to see the glory. And you start to see it in these signs. And that builds up to him opening the eyes of somebody who can't see. And when he sees Jesus, he gets on his knees and worships him. And there's a turn in the story. And you go, I don't know about that. And Jesus doubles down and says, no, to see me is to see the Father. Well, how am I supposed to believe that? I'll die and come back to life. You won't see me and then you'll see me again. And then when they saw Jesus... My Lord and my God. Twice after the Gospel of John, John the Apostle will describe being a Christian as seeing God. In 1 John 3, verse 6, he says, If you don't love your brother, you've not seen God. In 3 John 11, he's going to describe false teachers. And he says, They haven't seen God. As to say, those who are in Christ Jesus have seen God. He said, but I haven't seen with my own eyes. I haven't seen Jesus. Oh, that's why Jesus gave you a special blessing in John 20, 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It requires greater faith from you than it did for Thomas, which is why your reward is greater. We are blind until we come to Jesus and he opens our eyes to see. Luke 4, 18, Jesus at his first sermon at the synagogue, he said, I have come to bring the recovery of sight to the blind. And what is it exactly that Jesus is trying to show us? Let's put it in propositional format, meaning let's put it in, in statements of truth that you must believe to be saved. The first is that your sins have separated you from God. Why can none of us see God? Because of our sin. Because God cannot look upon sin. When Adam sinned, God drove him out of the garden. You can't be here anymore. You can't be with me anymore. And we just saw in the book of Leviticus, God comes to dwell in the midst of his people, but he has to be behind a veil. You can't even come into my symbolic presence without incense so clouding it that you can't look upon the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a system of blood and sacrifice to preserve the people who are dwelling even in that small fraction of God's presence. Sin separates you from God. And if you don't think you're a sinner, yeah, you do. Yes, you do. You don't think you're perfect, do you? Well, I mean, I do some wrong things. There you go. Well, those aren't my fault. Maybe not. But if it wasn't in you, it wouldn't have come out of you. Nobody sat down and taught you how to lie. Now, look, look here, Junior. We're going to tell her that we didn't do it. But we did. Yeah, but we're going to tell. What if we told her that we didn't? We could get away with anything. Nobody told you that. You say, did you spill that? No. Children have to be taught to tell the truth, not to lie. Any amens from any parents in this room? They've been taught to share. They have to be taught to be kind. You don't have to teach them things, especially as they get older and they stop listening to you so much. You say, where did you learn that? It came out of them, Mom. <laughs> it came out of them, Dad. They didn't need to be taught it. Sin comes out of us and it separates us from God. But Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. What does sin deserve? Death. That's capital punishment. Eternal spiritual punishment in a place called hell. Because it's a cosmic crime, it deserves a cosmic penalty. Well, my sins aren't that bad. You're part of the problem. You can't say, well, these cancer cells aren't so bad. Let's leave those. No, we have infected God's universe with wickedness. He made a world, he looked at it and he said it was good. And then man sinned and brought a curse and devastation upon this world. It requires punishment. But Jesus said, I'll take that punishment on myself. I'll hang on the tree. Significant Eden imagery there, huh? I'll hang on the tree. Something that the Old Testament says that everybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. And Jesus said, I'll bear the curse for you. 
Well, how do I know that? How can I know that Jesus actually did that? Because he rose from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. We know that. Even in the Bible, people that rose from the dead like Lazarus died again. I wonder if he was a little less nervous about it the second time around. Ah, it's not so bad. He rose from the dead, which means he has the power to deliver us from death. Does it really matter what happens after death? It matters to me because I don't know what happens after that. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to stop existing. I want to live on, but how can I live on after everything I've done? Jesus said, I've paid for all that, and I'm now offering you this freely. Well, how do I get that? Only thing Jesus tells us to do is believe. Put all your trust in me. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop relying on you to save you. You are the problem. You can't solve the problem. Because again, it's in you. You are the problem. Haven't you said this before about some governmental policy or other? Like, that was the problem in the first place. You can't just do more of it and solve it. That's what solved the problem. It's way worse than that with sin. You can't save yourself, but Jesus said, I can, but you've got to renounce all that old life and put all of it on me, and I'll bring you to the Father. If you believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that his death was enough and he did rise from the dead and you bow the knee and say, you are the Lord of my life now, you will be saved. Would God do that for me? Yes, because through Jesus, we know what God is like. Well, I mean, Jesus would do that, but God the Father is mean. Jesus and the Father are one. And to see Jesus is to see the Father. Does that make you a little more excited about going to heaven, maybe? Consider the woman caught in adultery. What did Jesus tell her? I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yeah, go and sin no more. But what's the punch of that, of that story? I don't condemn you. I'd like to be welcomed into heaven by Jesus Christ himself and then to bring you to his father because God doesn't want us just to be seen by him. He wants us to see him. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says right now we walk by faith and not by what? Sight. But Revelation 22, verse 4, which was also written by John, the very, very end of the Bible, he says, in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, after the tribulation, after the kingdom, after Satan's final rebellion, after everything and the skies rolled up like a scroll and all that, he says, they will see his face. We will see God's face. Now, wait a minute. God told Moses, no man can see my face and live. So how is that going to work? I realize Jesus can bring us to the Father, and we can see Jesus in his flesh, and we can see him by faith. But to actually look upon God, how can we do that? 1 John 3, verse 2. The evangelist also wrote this. Beloved, we are God's children now. Another favorite theme of the New Testament. And what we will be has not yet appeared what we will be has not yet appeared. What is he saying? I don't really know what we're going to be in eternity. Well, how could you say that, John? He says, because we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John knows this, that no one has seen God at any time, but in eternity, the people of God are going to see God as he is, unveiled, unfiltered. He says, that means something's got to happen to us. We call that glorification, if you want to use Paul's language. He says, we're going to become like him. When you get to heaven, you're going to be so much like God that you can behold him in his reality. Jesus Christ will bring that to you. Do you know what I love about that? God has taken the lie of Satan and made it the promise of eternity. He said, if you eat that fruit, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. He was lying. He was lying to them to get them out of the garden. But the last thing God's going to do for humanity is to glorify humanity. John says to be like him, to behold him as he is. This is why Paul says things like, it has not entered into the minds of man what's waiting for us someday. You'll never outdream, outimagine, outpray, or outthink God. You're going to see him as he is. That's the future. And when you look at what it cost God to save you, 
you got to know that it's true. He's not going to go halfway. We know that it's true. No one has seen God at any time, but there's this man, Jesus, that if you see him, you see the Father. And if you see Jesus, you can look forward to the day when you will see the Father. You won't be spending eternity apart from God. You'll be spending it in his presence. It's called, in another tradition's terms, the beatific vision. Seeing God, seeing the Blessed One. That's what's waiting for you. And in the meantime, we've got work to do. You can turn to 1 John if you like. Knowing everything that we just said, this, this amazing theme that John weaves through all of his writings, that no one has seen God, but to see Jesus is to see the Father, and Jesus will enable you to see the Father. He opens up his letter, written as an old man. And he says in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. <laughs> He's insisting, I've really seen Jesus. And to see Jesus is to really see God because Jesus has revealed God to us. And John held on to that testimony until his death. So did all the other apostles. Because like that blind man that Jesus healed, he said, I was blind, but now I see. So we're like what Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 8. He said, you haven't seen him, but you love him. What are we to do in the meantime? What are we to do to help a blind world. Jesus is no longer walking among us. So what are we to do to bring people to the vision of Jesus, which is the vision of God? Well, John tells us our last set of verses here in 1 John 4, 12. He said, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be Savior of the world. What is He saying? He said, yeah. In Jesus, you see the Father. But Jesus is not here. So how are we to bring people to the Father? He said, if you love like Jesus, you abide in His love, then when people see you, it's like they're seeing Jesus. And when they see Jesus, it's like they're seeing God. Therefore, you are His representatives to the world. When you love like Jesus, people see him in us and they pay heed to our testimony and they pay attention. And like those Greeks in John 12, 21, they say, we want to see Jesus. And we say, I can show you Jesus. I can show you. He was more than a man. He was the only begotten God who testified of the Father to us. And when we see Jesus, we see God. He opens up our blind eyes to see that His sacrifice is the only way to see God the Father, which is salvation. Salvation is to be able to stand in the presence of God and gaze full in His wonderful face as we sing. And when we are in His presence, we shall see Him face to face. And that's what we're living for, and that's what we're working for.